I want to finish the uh, uh, our study in the book of John. I always hate to finish a study that I love so much, but uh, we're going to finish the book of John. I think it's going to be about the 50th lesson. And uh, don't worry, you guys, I will uh, give you copies of these lessons that we're doing. Uh, but we're in chapter uh, 21 of the book of John. Um, there's been considerable uh, uh, commentaries on this chapter. Uh, I love this chapter. Uh, some commentators call this just sort of anticlimactic uh, chapter after the uh, the death, burial, and res- resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I consider it to be a, a very life-changing chapter. It has encouraged me over the years. Uh, it, to me, is the evidence of the reality of the work of Christ. It, it moves Christianity from from theoretical to reality in our lives, and it and it uh, and it and it shows us what effect the gospel and the resurrection of Christ has in our life. And this chapter, if I could sum it up, uh, I would say that it's it's an epilogue, but it is uh, it is a restoration of familial relationships. And it is primarily about Peter's <clears throat> restoration. When we last saw Peter, uh, we saw him in chapter 20 last week as he was running to the tomb. And he ran into the tomb and he saw the discarded handkerchief and the burial clothes of Jesus. And the scripture tells us that John believed. It didn't tell us whether Peter believed or not. We we can empathize with Peter. Last time we saw Peter uh, in conversation, it was him denying Christ three times, denying that he, that he even knew him. And so can you imagine with me the, the consternation and the agony in Peter's heart and mind these days uh, since Jesus has risen from the dead and uh, just the, the agony, the spirit he's going through uh, reminds me of what David said in the uh, in the Psalms. If you'll turn with me, I'll just read a couple of verses and couple of these psalms, we can just sort of get the mentality that Peter may have had uh, in this restoration uh, epilogue of the book of John. Look at uh, uh, Psalm 32 real quick. Psalm 32, read the first few verses. Psalm 32, this is a psalm of David, but it's a universal psalm to all of us who are broken familial relationships with our Heavenly Father. I'm going to read you a couple of verses, 32, Psalm, verse 1 through 4, I think, maybe 5. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. David said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old uh, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin and my uh, iniquity I have not hidden from you. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If you'll turn also over to uh, Psalm 51, uh, this is the psalm that David penned by the Spirit's inspiration after his uh, restoration from the sins of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, uh, Uriah, we see this in Psalm 51. Let's just look at verse uh, 10. Look at verse 10 as we try to dovetail this with the, the attitude in the heart of, of Peter. Uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Don't cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then, then after restoration has taken place, after forgiveness, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. So this sort of gives us an idea of the mentality of Peter after he had sinned against the Lord. And this is where we're going to start with in, uh, in, uh, in uh, John 21. Like I said, this is an epilogue. An epilogue is defined by Webster. Or one of the dictionaries says it's a section or, a, or speech of a book or play that serves as a comment on or a conclusion to what has been written. So this is an epilogue, and, and the primary focus of this epilogue is what happened to Peter. Now, last we saw him, I told you this, he was in this state, but this epilogue uh, to me is so beautiful because it pictures the restorative work of Christ as he uh, brings Peter back into his rightful position of leadership, as he forgives Peter's sins, as, as, as Peter, Scripture tells us, he weeps bitterly about his sins. He, he, he adheres to the teachings in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see this chapter primarily about the restoration of this familial relationship that Peter had with his, with his Savior, Jesus Christ. And then after he's restored, he's then recent out, reaffirmed through his ministry uh, as lead apostle and foundation stone for the church. Uh, prophecy fulfilled in, in Matthew 16 about Peter being the little stone of which the church is built upon. So let's look at this. Uh, John chapter 21. Uh, we'll look at this. Uh, Pat, have you got your Bible with you? And uh, could you read uh, the first uh, 10 verses of John 21? And then, yes. And then Pamela, if you've got your Bible with you, you can unmute yourself. And if you could uh, read uh, 11 through uh, 20, I would appreciate that. And then uh, I will finish up the reading as we look at John 21, primarily the restoration of Peter. So uh, if you would start that, uh, Miss Pam, I'd appreciate you. Okay. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we also, we also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to, where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren, this disciple wouldn't die. Yet Jesus didn't say to him that he wouldn't die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So we see the conclusion of this book. We see this, the the uh, resumation, the resuming of familial relationships between Peter and his Savior. And first thing I want to look at as we look at this, in the first 14 verses, I want to look at a few lessons from fishing. A few lessons from the last fishing trip. Now, we know that... Uh, a lot of you guys may be fishermen, but we know that the apostles, at least the four of them, were uh, commercial fishermen. That's what they did for a living. They were professional in it. They would take the fish, they would sell it in a market, and that's how they made their living, and they were good at what they did. 
And so we understand that they literally were fishermen. But we also need to understand that this story and these lessons from the last fishing trip are figurative and they are more symbolic and they are, they have great deep meaning to us as his people. So if we look at this uh, last fishing trip, I want us to draw out several things from it uh, as we, as we really look at Peter's reaction, how Peter reacts to his Lord, uh, the standoffishness by which Peter responded to the Lord, the personal, uh, uh, Intimacy between Christ and Peter is, as Jesus personally took him aside, he initiated the repentance and he brought him aside and then he tenderly uh, restored Peter to fellowship with him as we try to benefit from this epilogue, this last chapter of John. First thing I want us to see is that Jesus reaffirms his resurrection. The uh, resurrection is the most uh, important uh, history in the event of man since uh uh, Christ, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead. This is the most significant turning point in history, and it's a, it's a validation of who Jesus said he was. Remember, Jesus said, these things were written that you may believe that, that I am Jesus, that I'm the Son of God, and that believing these things, that you may have uh, life uh, in me. And so this is just a reiteration of the deity of Christ, that he is who he says he was, that he is the bread of life, and he is the light of the world, and he is the uh, uh, the door and the good shepherd and the vine and the way, the truth, and the life, and the resurrection and life. He is uh, the word, uh, the express image of the Godhead Bible. He's the exegesis of God. He's he's uh, uh, the full comprehension of who God is in human form, and he, and he explains himself to us. He is, he is grace, and he is truth. And so we see this fulfillment, this final consummation of this book as he restores Peter. We see Jesus, he reaffirms his resurrection. This is the third time that he's appeared to the disciples. Not the third time. There's other recordings in the Synoptic Gospels, but this is the third time in the book of John. Uh, as verse 14, which Pamela read, he appeared the same night in a locked room. He appeared eight days later in a locked room and just appeared to Thomas, and Thomas doubted him, and then we see him appearing here uh, at the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is reaffirming his resurrection. Uh, he told his disciples uh, that he would meet them again, so he's reaffirming his resurrection. He's showing to them, I am who I say I am. I have risen from the dead. He's reaffirming his resurrection. Secondly, he reaffirms his word. Uh, his word is truth. He had prayed that his word is truth. His word sets us apart. His word, uh, through faith in his word, is the ingredient by, by which we are set apart and made uh, to walk in power and unity with him. But he reaffirms his resurrection, his, his, re his resurrection and he reaffirms his word. Uh, remember what he had said to the disciples. And uh, go back with me to Matthew, will you? He had told his disciples, if you'll turn to Matthew three times, he had told his disciples that after he, he was raised from the dead, he was going to meet them in Galilee. Uh, so let's turn to these a few verses. So Jesus reaffirms his word. The disciples most probably are in Galilee as obedience to him. He's told them to go there, so they go there. But look at this, uh, Matthew 26, 32. Matthew 26, 32, uh, Jesus speaking, 
He's predicting uh, Peter's denial, and he's predicting his death. But look at verse 32, Matthew 26. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee is a uh, fishing town uh, named by the Lake of Galilee. Galilee is a 13-mile-long lake, eight miles wide, and it's where they, uh, they made their living, so Jesus told them to go to Galilee. Uh, look at uh, 28, verse 7 of Matthew. Matthew 28, verse 7. Jesus, uh, this is the angel telling the disciples after they had seen Jesus' uh, empty tomb. Uh, this is the angel telling the disciples, and go quickly, uh, excuse me, telling Mary, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you unto Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And then in verse 10, we see Jesus speaking to the women. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So Jesus is reaffirming his word. He's reaffirming his resurrection. It is he. He is risen from the dead. And uh, his word is still valid. His still word is still life. And, uh, and so we see these lessons. Lesson three, and then we're going to get into a little more detail now. Look at verse three of chapter 21. The disciples are fishing. They've been fishing all night, uh, they had caught nothing. But when the morning had come, verse 4, when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus, and Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they said, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And they cast it out. And they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. I think we see here uh, Jesus in these lessons from the last fishing trip. We see Jesus reminding the disciples how it all began. Remember the story when Jesus first called the disciples to himself. Uh, let's look at Luke chapter 5. Another example of of the providence, the sovereignty of God and, and being Lord of creation. You see this in Luke 5. If Jesus called the disciples to himself, the four fishermen, uh, I believe this is a reminder of who he is, a reminder of his deity. And I especially want us to look at Peter's reaction to this initial uh, fishing trip. I'll call this the first fishing trip. Uh, as opposed to the last one. Let's look at Luke 5, will you? Luke 5. And uh, uh, let's start with verse 4. When Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep end and let your nets for a catch. But Simon said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word... I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat so that they began to sink. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And when he and all who were with him 
astounded at the catch of fish that they had taken. So that also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so they left their boats and they forsook all and followed him. So we see this initial story, the first fishing trip, and then we see the last one. And we see these similarities. What Jesus is doing, I think, in this teaching is he's reminding them, and he's specifically reminding Peter of the initial relationship when Jesus called him to be a fisherman. Jesus, uh, Peter had fallen on his face, and he had seen God was sovereign. He had seen him as not just a man, but he had seen him as controller of creation. He had seen his uh, his uh, miracle of these fish. He had seen uh, the storms being calmed, and he fell on his face, and he said, depart from me, I'm an evil man. So he's bringing to remembrance to Peter and to the other seven disciples who were there on this last fishing trip that I am still God, I am still your, uh, your, your master, I am still your Lord, but I am still your friend, and I'm, still, and I'm now your brother. And he's reminded them, and so they see him, and he's especially calling Peter to understand and realize he's still in God's presence. God is still in control, and he's reminding Peter, and he's bringing back to remembrance Peter's initial uh, calling to the gospel, his initial response to Christ, and he's calling Peter specifically to renewing his trust and dependence on Jesus and he's telling him not to be afraid. And then he's reminding him of the task that he had originally given to Peter. And I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And you follow me. You leave everything behind and you trust me. So we see lesson number three. He's reminding disciples how it began. And he's specifically reminding Peter of the joy of his initial salvation. And he reiterates to him his renewed call to Peter and his promise to restore him to faith after his repentance and confession. Anybody have any things specifically to add to that about the, the reminding that God brings to his people, the, uh, the, the recalling that he brings to Peter's mind about the initial call? Uh, this has been a very uh, special chapter for me. Uh, when Jesus brought me back to himself, uh, when I was in sin, when I was unrecognizable as one of his children, I didn't deny him verbally, but I denied him in every other way possible. And he lovingly brought me back to himself, and he reminded me of, uh, of his calling into my life, and he restored me, and uh, he brought me to repentance, and uh, he chastened me. Uh, but uh, I remember it so fondly, and this chapter has been very important to me. Anybody else have any comments about how Jesus reminded you when he brought you back to himself. Anybody want to speak up on that? Just unmute your button and have at it if you'd like. But Jesus reminds us of who we are in him, and he reminds us of his calling in our life and his purposes for us. Anybody have anything to comment about that? I appreciate the tenderness that this, this, that uh, the chapter, chapter 21 describes how how God worked, how Jesus worked with Peter. He lovingly brought him back. He could have let, he could have used lightning bolts. Yes, he could. It's, it's, it was just, uh, it's a good picture of how I think he works in everybody's lives as, 
as believers to uh, reaffirm them and to uh, give them encouragement for the next thing that's that's going on in life. And uh, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Good comment. Thank you. Uh, Dave, anybody else? I was going to make a comment about uh, this kind of looks like a parallel situation in from Revelation where the angel talks about the church and when he's talking about the first church of Ephesus in uh, in Revelation, he, he, he commends the church, he condemns the church, he, and then he corrects it, but he, he exhorts them and reminds them that they've lost their first love, the church of Ephesus and, and Revelation. And I think it's somewhat a little parallel uh, scenario here where he goes back to Peter and reminds him of Absolutely. when he first came to the Lord, basically, and fell down on his feet and recognized who he was. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great comment. It is a parallel verse about our, the, our propensity and our preponderance to, to leave the Lord. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. it's our, uh, it's our natural tendency to do that. We're prone to wonder as the song says. And I thank you for that comment. Anybody else on that, uh, 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 the father, uh, Jesus is loving reminder to Peter to bring him back into fellowship. You know, same, same. I, me, when, uh, I got, we got our divorce after 31 years. I, uh, started to do a couple of really stupid things. I even thought about taking my own life and, uh, thank God that he just came right to me and let me know right away that I was not going to do that. And that was not the thing to do. And I, I just think if he hadn't, I don't know what he did, but he just touched me and he just said no. And I knew that was not the path to go. I appreciate that comment. Thanks for your honesty. Anybody else? To me, it's a point of encourage, encourages us to encourage other believers. And when someone seemingly fails, we need to be the ones to go to them and nurture them in the word and in the love of Christ. And that, that's what it speaks to my heart also. Excellent. Excellent. And you're going to really see this as we get into the book of First Peter, which is providentially next. This is a great preparation for that. You're going to see the apostle Peter as a pastor and an elder and his gentleness and his tenderness and his Loving reminder to his flock who are going through all sorts of tribulation and trouble. This, this teaching of Jesus will, will stick with him the rest of his life. And as you said, Dwayne, one of the primary, uh, callings of Peter is to, uh, is to, uh, is to, uh, encourage, uh, believers and to remind them and to, uh, and to teach them about suffering and what it means to be separated from the Lord in tribulation and, and the restorative work of Christ. A good comment. Uh, last thing, I want, next thing I want to talk about is uh, verses four through six, and uh, and we're going to title this "Jesus is Sovereign in Salvation." Now we know that uh, the catching of these fish is literal; it literally happened. But we do understand this. I, I hope you understand this. That this really is figurative, and it means more than fish. This is about the salvation of souls. This is about evangelization. Uh, the, the apostles 
uh, were told early on that I'm going to take you from being fishermen of men and I'm going to uh, fishermen of fish, commercial fishermen, and I'm going to make you fishermen of men. And so we see from this text, uh, a lesson from this text is that that uh, Jesus has to be sovereign in salvation. The, the, the emphasis that the, that the disciples couldn't catch any fish in the first lesson and the last lesson mm-hmm. really teaches us that salvation is of the Lord. Uh, we are to be obedient. We are to be faithful. We are to fulfill the mission and the calling in our lives to share the gospel to all men, the truth from beginning into end. But we do understand, I believe, in this class, and I know we do as a church, and I know Terry teaches this, God is sovereign in salvation. So our efforts, uh, unless the Holy Spirit of God comes along and regenerates the hearts of men and produces faith in men, uh, we can speak to our loved ones, to our family members, till we're really blue in the face, and we will achieve no results. God has to do it. He has to give the increase. So this picture of the disciples fishing without catching any fish is a picture of God has to work the salvation out. And so our efforts, though, though, uh, though uh, commendable and though obedient, we and ourselves cannot produce any catch. We cannot catch any fish. Uh, we have to, It has to be the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit in our lives. So we see that, and we see they weren't able to catch any fish. And then we see uh, Jesus saying, cast it out on the right side. This is a way of saying, when I am in this, fish will be caught. Salvation will be accomplished. This reminds us of, of what Jesus has been teaching in the whole book. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 6. We've looked at this uh, many times, but it it dovetails John 6 and John 10. Uh, We see this, uh, if you'll look with me in uh, verse 37, this picture that God is sovereign in salvation. Look at 637 of John. You remember this. All that the Father will come gives me will come, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me will come to me, and I will lose nothing, but I will raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Look with me to John chapter 10, verses that we are uh, intimately familiar with. John 10, uh, 15 and 16. Uh, 15 and 16. We see Jesus speaking again. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold that I may also bring them in. I must bring them in, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. And then if you'll turn over to verse uh, uh, turn over to verse 27, as, as Jesus finishes his teaching, uh, we see this verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. 
I and my Father are one. So we see this picture of salvation, that uh, he is the author of salvation, he's the finisher of it, and he brings fish into the boat, metaphorically speaking, he brings them into the, uh, the, uh, into the body of Christ, as another metaphor is sheep, and we see that Christ is the one bringing in the, bringing in the fish, bringing in the sheep, bringing in the body of Christ, as he has ordained it to me. So we see that he is sovereign in salvation. And I love this next one. And I will call this, uh, this would be point E, uh, point five. Uh, God knows those who are his. And uh, we'll call this God knows those who are his. And I want to look at one little verse that's always perplexed me over the years. And I have read so many commentators on this verse. I've never really anyone that has been sensitive with this verse. I've never really been satisfied with this verse, but it's verse 11. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the, to the land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. I've always wondered, I'm sure, Terry, you have too, why the number 153? I always try to understand every word of scripture, every verse, and I've read so many commentaries, as I said, and, and I've never had anyone adequately explain to me what is the significance of 153 fish. And uh, as you read over the years, you see, as I've read over the years, oh, Augustine and his, and just coming out of Roman Catholicism, he said, well, that represents the accumulation of the prophets and the law. He said, so that's the cumulative number that come out, not literally, but it's just a number that represents that. And then Calvin comes along and he says, Augustine, he said, you are tri he said, you are childish and you chase trivial things when you try to come up with a, a reason for 153. And so uh, other authors have said other things. Uh, this is what I know about the number 153. Uh, uh, it represents all the fish. It represents all the sheep. It represents the totality of all God's people. Uh, as we read earlier, it represents all the Father has given me. I will bring in and I will lose nothing. It represents all the sheep that believe on Christ and all the sheep that Christ has died for. None of them lost. It represents past sheep, the elect of Israel. It represents the new body of Christ, the church, and it represents those today who still have not come to the knowledge of Christ, but will be caught and will be brought up. And so I think that's the most significant thing about the numbers, that it represents all of God's people from eternity past that, that God has chosen to save and who Jesus secured their salvation by his death on the cross. It also says... John is an eyewitness to this account. Remember in 1 John, uh, he says that we, I'm an eyewitness to the account of Jesus Christ. I have touched him. I've experienced him. And so the number 153 authenticates the eyewitness of John, that he was there, that they were so overwhelmed by the number of fish, and it's probably the largest fish catch ever, that they literally counted the fish because it was a miracle, they knew it was of God. It was an encouraging catch that, that pointed to their future uh, successes as foundation stones to the church. It pointed to their future role 
as uh, evangelist in the building of the body of Christ. So that number 153 uh, sums up the total number, but it also authenticates the message of, of John. Uh, it tells us that uh, that uh, Jesus is providing for the needs. You know, Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ. So this typifies the physical as well as the, as well as the spiritual uh, fulfillment of the scriptures and that the sufficiency of Christ, that he will supply all our physical needs, uh, that he will be the one who gives us increase and who uses us to his glory for, for spiritual fulfillment and, and the bringing in of, of his kingdom. And so I think that is, uh, is the meaning of 153. I don't think we can Don, else about it. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say, could it also, in addition to what you said, could it also be that, you know, Christ sees the sparrow when it falls. Christ knows the number of hairs on our head. You know, he knows the number of grains of sand on the seashore. It is a picture of how the exactness of Christ is, you know, in all of that. Absolutely. Excellent comment, Sister Sue. Good. God is sovereign over everything. If he's not sovereign in salvation, he's not sovereign over all things. And he is. And notice the beautiful ending. The net was not broken. Jesus' death is sufficient, sufficiently efficacious for all men. And it is, it is powerful enough and it is efficacious enough to bring in the total amount and not one fish we're going to break through. That net is not going to break. That is picture of the sustaining the uh, beholding work of God, that he's not going to lose any of his sheep. None will be lost. We cannot lose our salvation. And it, that it speaks of the security, the preservation, and the perseverance of the saints, okay? The net is not broken. All of them are going to be brought in. This is a work of God. All of them will be brought in, and none of them will be lost. If that doesn't encourage you on this Sunday morning, I don't know what else will. God is going to say, he's going to bring it to pass his salvation, and he, in his man of salvation, is going to hold on to you, and you will be brought to glory. Hey, how about that? The net is not broken, uh, and he will bring to pass uh, what he's ordained from eternity past, and he will bring you to glory, and uh, we can hope in him. Any comments about that? Any any just sort of praise the Lord, comment, anything that would encourage us this morning. The net is not going to be broken. We're all going to be brought in, uh, those he's called. Anybody have any comments about that? Well, either you're shy or whatever, but we'll let it go with that. But uh, he is a sustainer of his salvation. We can hope in him. Uh, next thing, next uh, spend of time, I want to look at the restoration of Peter. Uh, I think the primary focus of this chapter, and we find it in in chapter in chapter twenty one, of course, but fifteen through seventeen, the restoration of Peter and Jesus is the master teacher, and you can just see this. Uh, uh, you can see uh, the disciples with all these fish. Uh, bringing in the nets to shore. And we see the disciples, they're, they're fellowshipping with Jesus. He's, he's, 
He's miraculously provided fish for the call of fire. Already there before the fish are even brought in. They're having breakfast, and we see Peter sort of off on the side, and he is left. He's the one that pulls in the net. The other disciples aren't with him. You can just see what's going on in Peter's mind. He's seen the Lord. He's still got that zealousy for the Lord. He jumps off the boat. He swims 300 feet, 100 yards to shore in his zealousy. Nothing's changed from Peter. But you can just still see the wheels turning in Peter's mind. As you see, uh, verse 11, Peter went up and dragged the net to land. and But the other disciples were with Jesus eating the breakfast that he had prepared. And, and Peter is still isolated. He still understands that he's broken fellowship. He's still part of the a repentance phase, and he's still in his mind wondering about this, what he's done. He's thinking about this. You can identify with Peter. In Jesus Christ, Going to him gently, you can just sense the empathy. You can sense the, the the big brown, soft, lovable eyes of Jesus and his empathy with no condemnation. As he approaches Peter in verse 15, and he says, Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Uh, in the Greek, uh, that love me more than these, it can either mean, number one, do you love me more then you love these men? Do you love me more than these men love me? Or do you love me more than fishing? Uh, I think it probably means two and three. He asked him the question, do you love me more than these men love me? Do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than your worldly pursuits? And most probably, uh, he asked him what, if he loves them more than the other men, is because Peter had implied, remember when he denied the Lord? He said, even if everybody else denies you, I'm not going to deny you. So that's an implication is, hey, these other men may fail you. These other men may do this. These other men may do that, but not me. Peter was proud like I was. Peter thought he had a specific, special love relationship with the Lord. But it turns out, he was humbled, and it turns out he's the one that denied, and the implication that, hey, everybody else made to do it, not me, it turned out that the Lord showed him and taught him uh, not to be puffed up with pride or think more highly of yourself than you ought to, and he taught Peter a great lesson. And so Jesus, in his compassion, comes to Jesus, and he's, look what he says. He says, Peter, do you love me? What? What Jesus is going to do and what Peter is going to do is going to have profound implications. In the Greek, there's four words for love. And uh, as fate would have it, I forgot the fourth. But the number one definition of love in the Greek is agapu. It's agapu love, agape love. And it is the divine love. And it is the love that is spoken only of. And it, and it authenticates from the love of God. God loves us with an agape love. And as one of my commentators says, Jesus asked Peter, do you agape love me? And that word agape love means, and I'm going to read this, it's divine love. It's an unselfish love. It's an unconditional love. It's a most noble action of love. This agape love chooses to love the unlovely. It loves the unattractive. It loves the unbecoming. It emanates from a rational soul, not so much from an emotional state, 
but it is very emotional. It is total commitment. And so Jesus uh, uh, basically calls uh, Peter to say, have you fulfilled the great commandment? Do you love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Do you agape love me? Peter, he said, do you love me more than these? And Peter answers him, Lord, you know I phileo love you. I love you like a brother. That's the second uh, Greek word. It's uh, where we get Philadelphia from, city of brotherly love. Jesus says, do you love me totally committed to me unselfishly? And Peter says, you know, I love you like a brother. You know, I'm fond of you. It's that love that is that, that is a humanistic love. It's a love that falls short of total commitment. It's a love that is not unselfish. It's the kind of love that, that uh, we have. I love Rusty to death, but my love for him is, is not like it should be as agape love. Uh, if it came down to it, I may have to choose myself over him, to be quite honest, right? So it's not an agape love. And I know you would mean too, so okay, good with that. But it's not a, an agape love as it should be, and we're working toward that by God's grace. But uh, our love, we're fond of one another. We do what we could for one another. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, there is still some selfishness to our love, right? So Jesus, he comes to Peter. He, he questions his heart. He gets to the, to the loyalty. He gets to the very cords of who Peter is and his soul. In his human spirit, he says, Peter, do you love me like I love you? Unconditionally, for God commends his love toward us while we were still sinners. He agape loved, he loved the unlovable. For God so loved the world, he agape loved us unselfishly, unconditionally, right? And so Jesus asked Peter, do you love me like that? And Peter said, I love you like a brother. And Jesus said, what did Jesus say in verse uh, 15, he says, feed my lambs. Jesus took that answer and he said, okay, with what you've got right now, what, how you love me, you feed my lambs. You tend to my sheep. You minister to my people. And what had happened, Jesus didn't just rebuke him for that kind of love, but, but Jesus knows that it takes the, his spirit to create this love in us to develop this love in it, to sanctifying work of the Spirit. He's just saying, where you are right now, with the love you have, you minister to my sheep. You're going to be a pastor. You're going to be an evangelist. You're going to be an apostle. You're foundational. And he says, where you are, Peter, you love my sheep, and you tend for my sheep where you are. And so he says, feed my land. Then Jesus said a second time, uh, verse 16, Simon, do you... Agape love me? And Peter said, you know, Lord, I love you like a brother. And Jesus said again, this time, tend my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus says to him, Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me like a brother? He changes the tense the third time. And he says, Simon Peter, do you love me like a brother? And Simon Peter, look, Peter is grieved because he said to him the third time, and he said it differently, do you love me like a brother? See, Peter was convicted then that his love and his commitment to Christ wasn't what it needed to be. He was still yet in the preparing state to be 
a foundational stone for the church, right? He still needed to be taught these divine lessons. He still needed to see that his heart wasn't where it needed to be. He needed God's grace in his heart for restoration, for repentance. Uh, he needed to mature in the faith. And so he sees Jesus change, lower the standard, so to speak. And I say that in a figurative sense. And then Peter understands that. And it grieves him, it convicts him that he don't love the Lord like he should. And MacArthur says he, he, he probably, he probably said, I love you like a brother because he understood he had forsaken the Lord. He understood he had fallen short of the standard that he had uh, abandoned Christ in his time of need. And there was humility there. He was embarrassed. And so it's his way to respond to he just said, Lord, you know my heart. You know the inadequacies of where I am now. He's saying, Lord, I trust you. Would you develop this love for me within you? And so he says, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And so anybody have any comments about this? Theologians uh, speculate that the three questions, the three times he asked him about his love for him, uh, really responds to the three times that he denied him. And so that's pretty speculative. But I think it makes good sense. Does anybody have any comments about that? Yes, Sheila. Well, I was just thinking, you know, in the very beginning of the chapter, whenever Peter was the one who said, I'm going fishing, you know, and he reverted to what all of us do, to the thing that comforts us, you know, that is a worldly thing rather than Christ. And because he probably, I mean, I don't know this. This is speculation. You know, he, uh, I'm sure was convicted because he had denied Christ and he didn't know how to go about it. But I think it's such a pretty, you know, a nice picture, a beautiful picture of how Christ draws us back in. I mean, he allowed Peter to go fishing to see that, that that did not comfort him. That did not, his peace wasn't back, you know, he wasn't fulfilled. And then Christ did it when they got on shore. You know, I just think it's a, a gracious picture of how Christ deals with us. Excellent. Anybody comments about that? Remember, we talked about this in Peter's denial. There was purpose in the denial. Remember what, what he sold to Peter in Luke 22? Luke 22, verse 31. There's so many lessons in this, the denial of Peter. We see that Satan is after us, that he wants to devour us. He's a roaring lion. He's an accuser of the brother. He wants to create doubt in our hearts and our minds. He wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy our ministry. He wants to shame the name of Jesus Christ. That's Pete. That's Satan's method of operation. That's what he's all about. Remember what he told Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So, uh, like you said, Sheila, this, this denial was allowed in the providence of God for a specific, specific purpose to bring about repentance 
to bring about restoration and teach everybody in this Zoom room that, that, that Christ can restore familial relationships no matter what we have done. We don't lose salvation. He's still Father. But when we confess that sin, he restores the familial relationship. All of us have kids that have disappointed and, 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 and sinned against us. And we know the joy that when our kids come into say, Mom, Dad, I did this, I did that. And we as dads, we as moms, we, we hug them and say, we love you, son. We love you, daughter. Thank you for confessing that sin, for agreeing with what it is, that it broke fellowship but we restore you to fellowship. This is a beautiful picture of the restorative work of Christ in our lives, the, the, the restoration of a family relationship. And we see Jesus doing that. He takes the lead. And then we notice uh, after he restores Peter, uh, and we see uh, Peter's response to him, uh, uh, look, what, uh, look what Jesus says. In verse 17, uh, uh, no, let's go to verse 18. After the, the relationship is restored, after forgiveness is given, uh, repentance is offered, it's genuine, uh, and, and Peter genuinely uh, wants to follow the Look at verse 18. Most assuredly, I say unto you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, you walked about where you wished, but when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you don't wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he told Peter, follow me. Now you're ready to follow me. Repentance has been granted. Restoration has been accomplished. And now he is now, now Peter is being prepared for his task. And that task is following the Lord. That task even includes his martyrdom. Jesus here predicts that Peter's task would end in death. He is telling Peter here that you follow me, you trust me, you don't fear, you you pursue me, and he's not he's not. Notice when he doesn't say everything's going to be hunky-dory, everything is going to come up roses, life is going to be easier. No, he says, Peter, the cost of discipleship, which was famously coined by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the cost of discipleship. And, and he told Peter, the cost of discipleship of following me is your death. And this signifies how Peter would die according to Jewish tradition, uh, Peter was uh, crucified upside down by Nero in 67, 68 B.C. because Peter refused to be crucified like his Savior. He still was humble. He still understood. He didn't wasn't worthy to die like his great Savior. And so uh, according to tradition, he was crucified upside down. But we see uh, Jesus' admonition to Peter, his, his, his uh, a task given to Peter, and uh, and we see this all over Peter's life. When he said he said to follow me, feed my sheep. Look what Peter said later in his book before he passed the glory, before he was martyred. Look what Peter said. Look at this nurturing. He took to what Jesus said and he never forgot it. And may we learn this great lesson. 
Look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. This is a, a, a text that uh, we as elders have to uh, come to understand about how to shepherd God's flock. And Peter never forgot the lessons of Jesus. Do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, follow me. Look at 1 Peter 5, uh, uh, verse 1 through 4. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I'm also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as an overseer. Don't do it out of compulsion, but do it willingly. Don't do it for dishonest gain, but be eager, not as being uh, lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then you see Peter also, if you look to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, look at uh, Peter's response uh, as he finishes the race well, as he knows his his approaching martyrdom. 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter, (coughs) chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Peter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, Though you know and are established in the present truth, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, this body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that I must shortly put off this body, this tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after I have died. So we see Peter finishing well, following well, as Jesus predicted and prophesied of his death, that we see this fulfilled, Peter finishing well and telling his people and reminding them by text and by letter to continue being faithful. And then as I close, the last thing, lessons from uh, from this uh, chapter on uh, reaffirmation and uh, restoration. Uh, I want to look at uh, the last part of this section uh, first thing I want us to look at, we'll call this personal responsibility uh, to follow God's path. Personal responsibility uh, to follow God's path. Peter, after he was told how he was going to be martyred, he looks around in typical Peter fashion. It's amazing God doesn't take away our personality. But he uses our personality with all of its warts and its hindrances and its strengths and its weaknesses. And Peter, so impulsive still, says, what about John? What about this guy? You know, you told me I'm going to be girded and taken where I don't want to go and basically uh, tell me about my death. Uh, what about John? And, uh, and Jesus says to John, he says, uh, uh, verse 23, Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, What is that to you? You follow me. We have a personal responsibility to follow God. And hear this. God has equipped each one of us in the body with a specific gift, with specific responsibilities, with specific tasks. And he has ordained each one of our days and how our life is going to turn out. 
So instead of being concerned about what's going to happen to O'Terry or what's going to happen to Dave or surely what's going to happen to, to Jim up there, we need to focus on our fellowship and our obedience of Jesus Christ. He has gifted us specifically for the works that he's ordained us to do. That's why scripture says he is put in the church in the body as he sees fit. So we're not going to be envious of Terry's great pastoral and teaching skills. We're not going to be envious of, of Rusty's gifts of mercy and helps, which are behind the scenes. We're not going to be envious of Jim Kuholt's gifts of encouragement. Okay. We're not going to be guilt. We're not going to be envious of, uh, of, uh, of Ron and Pam's just loving care about people and persistent pursue people. Okay. We're going to be faithful to what God has given us to do. We're not going to be envious of others, but we're going to be responsible for God's gifting to us. We're to be content with where we've been placed. Okay. And what God is moving in us to accomplish his purpose. Different for each one of us, but ultimately he'll be glorified. We're going to accomplish the works he's given us to do, uh, according to Ephesians 2.10. And so Jesus tells Peter, you focus on yourself. You follow me, personal. Don't worry about John over here. You be faithful to me, and I'm going to take care of John. I'm going to take care of Brian. I'm going to take care of Chris. I'm going to take care of Jeff. I'm going to take care of Sally and Ron and, and, and Fran and Dwayne. So you focus on being obedient to me. Okay. That's a good lesson for us to learn. And, uh, and then lastly, uh, the last verse, uh, really teaches us that, uh, that John's writings were not exhaustive. They were selective. Uh, it says in verse 25, if I had written all the things that, that, that I experienced in my fellowship and my walk with Jesus for three and a half years. The, the whole, he uses a hyperbole here. He uses an intended exaggeration to tell us the truth. He says, it's unspeakable and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's una- and we are unable as men to write down on pen and paper the effect of Jesus Christ's life. And he's saying, it's what I've written is not exhaustive, but it is what the Holy Spirit has instructed me to do. It's selective. And the purpose of it has been, since we've learned from day one, is to, is to, is to show us that Christ is God, that he is deity, and that he is, uh, Father and he are one. This intimacy that we've gleaned from this book, the uh, particular intimacy and the specific spirituality of this book that is that is akin to none. It is unlike any of the synoptic gospels. It is personable to a believing people that we would continue to believe. Okay, and so John is saying, I didn't write everything. I didn't. I didn't detail every conversation we've had over the last three and a half years. But I have given you what the Spirit has given me, and it is enough that you would continue to believe of the detail that Jesus has given himself, that you would believe in him. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful way to end the book, and it's an encouragement to me and you. And I hope wherever you are in your walk, I know most of you pretty well, 
And, uh, and you may not be in abject rebellion against God, but there may be some secret sin that you're regarding in your heart. And I would just encourage you to, to call on the name of the Lord, and he will restore the joy of your salvation, and he will cleanse you and create newness again within you, and he will uh, restore the fellowship that you had. So call on his name. Uh, he will not condemn you. He will welcome you, and he will say, he will examine your heart, and he will say, love me, follow me, be faithful to me. Uh, anybody have anything that, to offer or add? It's about 1020, typical time. To I leave. have one thing. Yes, ma'am. Well, I just, I love that. Um, I never really saw all this, but how it connected with the part in Romans, which is one of my favorite verses in Romans 2 where he says it's God's love that brings us to repentance. And um, I just love that when you finally see the um, the unconditional pursuing love of Christ in your life, um, that he just lavishes this on you. You come in contact with your own unworthiness, and it just brings you to repentance. And I'm so much like Peter. You're just sold out, and you're ready to go. You're I'm jumping off the boat and ready to, you know, go full on. Um so, I mean, I think it's just, it's so beautiful to see that even so, so broken and, and guilty, and, but God used him so powerfully too. He did. He did. I'm like you, Chris. I'm in, I'm very uh, impetuous and I am very, uh, very zealous sometimes. And, uh, and God has to continually rein me in, but, uh, he does in his mercy. Uh, anybody else have anything to offer or add before we uh, listen to Terry uh, in live stream at 11? you have anything to offer or add, Terry, or correct or anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, love you guys, and I uh, uh, encourage you to stay around. Uh, you can, after we click off, you can uh, go into the Zoom room if you'd like and uh, uh, fellowship with one another, and, and hopefully shortly, uh, this government's going to open things up and we'll be able to see each other soon. But let me close in prayer. And then uh, next week, if you want to prepare, uh, uh, we're going to start First Peter. Uh, I didn't want to start a new book during this time, but I'm going to because we don't know. But I'm going to go ahead and start it. But let me pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of your love for us, your people. I thank you for your compassion that you understand our frailties, you understand our humanities, you understand our flesh is not subject to your law and our flesh isn't uh, in, isn't capable of following you, but the spirit is. And so we, we thank you that you fill us with your spirit and that we have an ability and a desire and a will to follow you. Thank you for restoration. Thank you that if we confess our sins, you're faithful just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That if we, your people, would humble ourselves and pray, if we would turn from our wicked ways, you would heal our land. And I pray that we, as a people, as a as individuals, would examine ourselves to see uh, if there is something in our lives that need to be restored. And may we trust the blood to cleanse our consciousness and uh, restore us to yourself. Thank you for this beautiful picture and for what you're doing in each one of our lives. Help us to be faithful followers of yours, and grant us strength in the days in which we live to be salt and delight and to be bold and faithful as we see this example of Peter, that you restored him 
and you gave him purpose in life. May we be faithful to the purposes you've given us. I pray that you would bless uh, Terry's sermon. And I pray that you would uh, be glorified in it, that you would build us up in your faith. We trust your word will accomplish its purpose as you send it out. It won't return into you void. And I thank you for Terry, and I pray you bless the message, bless the worship. And I thank you for this dear group of believers and the privilege of of, uh, of sharing scripture with them. And may they be encouraged by it. In your name I pray, Father. Amen.